Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 6. Delight in the old paths. We as a society are very invested in the new and improved. I admit I am not um, averse to this. I am not, uh, I'm guilty of this myself. One of the things that my wife and I talk about, my wife, uh, as it relates to computers, um, if she sees a little pop-up that says you have an update, she will go out of her way to avoid those updates at any cost. Those updates mean things get broken, right? Those updates mean things, problems are introduced to the machine that's working just fine. I am the exact opposite. If I see you have an update, my eye starts to twitch and my finger just cannot help but click on update. I have to have the update. I have to have it right away. I, I, I have to go out of my way to find the update. If the update isn't yet available by the normal means of update, but it's available by some other means, I will reinstall things to get the update. I have to have the update. That's this desire for the new and the improved. I've just got to have it. We want things that are convenient. We want things that are quick. We want things that are easy. We want things that are up to date. And perhaps we all have some means by which in our society that, that we feel this desire. We change things just for the sake of changing things. Because we as humans want things that are fresh. We want things that are new. We want things that are different. But there's a strong case that can, and in, in, in a manner of speaking, should be made for the preservation of things as they are. Be it traditions or customs, lessons of years gone by, the old paths are not bad just because they are old. Now, in some senses, I'm preaching to the choir, right? We are a church that uses traditional music. We are a church that uses the King James Bible. We're a church that has attempted and desired, wherever we can, to stay on the old paths. The paths that have proven themselves to be uh, the paths of the, the, the giants of the faith. The paths that have proven themselves to, to uh, be effective through um, years of, of testing and proving and men of years gone by. But here's the thing. The old paths aren't good just because they're old. Right? And we must not have our loyalties on them just because they exist. Today, I'd like for us to take some time to consider the link that binds us to the paths of old. And in doing so, what we're going to find is that as we talk about the old paths, we're not necessarily saying we can't change tradition or custom. What we're saying is that the Word of God does not change. And that from generation to generation from century to century the word of God stands and has been and always will be the source of blessing has been and always will be the source of rest for our souls so we pick up today in Jeremiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 17 and we begin in chapter 6 verse 1 reading this O ye children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem and blow the trumpet in Tekoa and set up a sign of fire in Beth-Hacherim. 
For evil appeareth out of the north, and great destruction. God addresses this call to the children of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the two tribes that became the southern kingdom of Judah when the nation split into a northern and a southern kingdom. To this end, we understand that God is addressing once again the southern kingdom of Judah, whereas before we saw this extended message to the nation of Israel, right, of joy, the extended message of the nation of Israel of restoration, he is now addressing himself once again to the children of Benjamin, to the children of the nation of Judah. Benjamin in particular, we would understand to be a, a, a large contingency of those that lived in Jerusalem. And God calls for them to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem. He tells them to blow the trumpet in Tekoa. Tekoa was a city only known by those really who resided in it. One of David's mighty men, Ira, the son of Ikesh, is called a Tekoite. 2 Samuel 14, verse 2, speaks of a woman of Tekoa who was called to help King David find peace with his son Absalom. He was asked by one of David's generals to, uh, she was asked by one of David's generals to speak to him in a manner that would disarm him and to call him to seek restoration with his son, apparently a wise woman from Tekoa. The city was not necessarily that far from Jerusalem, was perhaps a military staging ground. We, we don't really know. And then he says, set up a sign of fire in Beth Hacherem. Beth Hacherem was a city which could be seen from Bethlehem. It was about halfway between Tekoa and Jerusalem. It was on a mountain, quite possibly served as a signal station. The idea being that Beth Hacherem would be a place where there would be a signal, a fire signal, if there was a problem. Perhaps Tekoa being a staging ground for the military at the time. In which case, the idea here would be this. Stage yourself, prepare yourself because battle is coming. Let the people know in the outlet, in, in the watchtowers around that they need to be ready because the fires are going to have to be lit very soon. Because evil is appearing out of the north. Great destruction is coming. The idea is that judgment is coming. And with that judgment, destruction, and God calls his people to be ready. And of course, we've seen how that readiness needs to take place. That readiness is not actually a military readiness. God is not saying, have your military ready. As a matter of fact, as we continue through Jeremiah, we'll see that one of the explicit messages Jeremiah gives to the nation is, don't fight. Don't resist. Submit yourself to Babylon. It's too late to fight. If you submit yourself to Babylon, there will be much less bloodshed. Of course, they don't listen to that either. So we have this idea here of destruction on its way. Verses 2 and 3. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. The shepherds with their flocks shall come unto her. They shall pitch their tents around her round about. They shall feed everyone in his place. There are some interesting equations going on here. God says he likens the daughter of Zion, that would be the people of Israel, to a comely and delicate woman. The idea here is that she's beautiful but also vulnerable. She's comely but delicate. She's beautiful. She's vulnerable. God's trying to tell them that uh, though they, uh, like he described in the last chapter, dress themselves up in scarlet and in jewelry, as he, as he told them to stop doing in the last chapter because it's not going to help. 
Yet they are in grave danger when they step outside of God's protection. Like a young lady who is beautiful and yet she steps outside of the God-given protections in her life. This idea, God says, I see you as a comely yet delicate woman. And then God says that the shepherds with their flocks will come up unto her, pitch tents around her, and feed the flock. Uh, There's, again, a unique analogy here. The idea that that the shepherds, that that would be the leaders, are going to lead their sheep to feed on her. There's kind of a mixed metaphor here. The shepherds would likely be the kings of the north. The, the, The sheep would be the military. And the idea of feeding upon her being that the military is going to come upon this nation, destroy them, feed off of them, live off of the spoils of the land. God continues in verses 4 and 5. He says, prepare ye war against her. He's speaking here to these kings, to these shepherds, right? Arise and let us go up at noon. Or these, excuse me, these, these shepherds are speaking to their flock. These kings are speaking to their armies. Woe, uh, read that again. Prepare ye war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. Woe unto us, for the day goeth away, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. Arise and let us go by night and let us destroy her palaces. So the kings say to their army, these shepherds say to their flocks, that surround this delicate but comely woman, this vulnerable land. Let us go up at noon. Let us attack them. And then if they fail at noon, they'll go up in the shadows of the evening, unrelenting until they destroy the palaces of Jerusalem. Verses 6 and 7. For thus hath the Lord of hosts said, Hew ye down trees, cast a mount against Jerusalem. This is the city to be visited. She is wholly oppressed in the midst of her. As a fountain casteth out her waters, so she casteth out her wickedness. Violence and spoil is heard in her. Before me continually is grief and wounds. So God is heard here commanding these armies. The shepherds commanded their flocks. The kings commanded their armies to attack. Now God says to them, Hew down trees, cut down trees, cast down Cast mountains at Jerusalem. The idea here is, is, is to besiege the, the city. And God uses two siege concepts to make his point. The first would be the cutting down of trees. You would cut down trees as a military for several reasons. To make battering rams, to ram down the gates. You would cut down trees to create perhaps the trebuchet to, to knock down the walls. You would cut down trees perhaps to, to create uh, instruments of siege where you would build towers or you would build, um, you would build ladders to place against the walls in order to climb over the walls and get over the walls. And the other idea here, the second idea of besieging the city, casting a mountain. This would be a siege ramp. If you uh, have ever studied the history of the, fi- of the grand, the last stand at Masada. Masada, of course, is one of the uh, rock fortresses in southern Israel. It was the last stand of the zealots in the days where they, in 70 AD, had conspired against Rome, had rebelled against Rome, and the last holdout of the free nation of Israel was in this tower of Masada and they held out for some time and what Rome did in order to overthrow Masada is they actually literally built a mountain they built an earthen ramp that went up the side of the mountain to besiege the the rock fortress of Masada and that's the idea here this would not necessarily be an uncommon tactic that you take earth and you begin to build up a ramp 
that, that you build up and build up and build up until there is an earthen ramp that goes from the ground all the way up at a general steady pitch to the top of the wall and then your army can just flood over the wall. These are the ideas here when God says, hew down trees, cast a mountain against Jerusalem. God says simply, the city must be visited. The city must be attacked. It must be visited because oppression is everywhere within her. God's justice simply cannot ignore it. He likens the wickedness of the city to a pouring fountain. It just keeps pouring over and over again. Every time God looks, there is wickedness pouring out of this city. Violence is everywhere. And God says that as he sees it, the continual violence is to him a continual grief, a continual wounding. God likens himself to being continually wounded, a, a daily, a moment-by-moment moment wounding as the evil of this city is just pouring out from it. So God, please, again, he says to them, Be thou instructed, O Jerusalem. Lest my soul depart from thee, lest I make thee desolate, a land not inhabited. God pleased with them, and he says, be instructed. This word meaning to be chastened, to be corrected, to be reformed. The idea is that God is asking them to take to heart what he's telling them. Hear what I'm saying and be reformed by it. Hear what I'm saying and be Corrected by it. It's one of those interesting things. Again, I relate this somewhat to parenting. It's just, I guess, the season of life that I'm in, where I say things to my children, and I can say things to my children, and my children can know them. You've been told not to hit your brother. I say again, don't hit your brother. Be kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. And there's a difference between my child hearing and my child being instructed. And there is a day where my child is instructed, is corrected, is reformed. And it sinks in. I should not do this. This is not becoming a follower of Christ or this is not becoming a child of my father. That's what he's saying here. Be instructed. Not just hearing and understanding, but being reproved, taking it to heart. A child who is instructed, hears, don't hit your sister, understands, dad doesn't want me to hit my sister, and then obeys, I will not hit my sister any longer. And if the city will not be instructed, God says his soul will depart from them. This being his blessing, his desire toward them. Now we've already read, and we will read again, that God is not going to make full end. Right? He's not going to make full end of his people. But there will be this idea that God is going to remove his blessing from them. He warns them that he will make the land uninhabited. So we continue in verse 9. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall be throughly gleaned. Excuse me. They shall throughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. Turn back thine hand as a grape gatherer into the basket. So God warns them that the nation when it comes to them, that the enemy, when it comes to them, that this, these kings with their armies, when it comes, will throughly glean the remnant of Israel, that this people will be picked clean, 
like a vine, that they will turn their hand back into the basket. The idea being that anything that they miss in round one, they'll get in round two. And anything that they miss in round two, they'll get in round three until everything's gone. And that is how many rounds it takes, historically speaking. 605 B.C., 597 B.C., 586 B.C. There are three deportations. And if Babylon missed it the first time, they're going to come back and keep picking until everything is gone. They're going to keep putting their hand back into the basket until they've gotten it all. This is what God is warning about, that they glean first the best grapes the first time around, right? But they don't stop there. They come back for everything until everything is gone. This is God's warning to them. Now, I want to take a moment here and highlight a word which, uh, of which there is some confusion in our circles. The King James translators from time to time use the word throughly. And in Oxford translations, this word has been changed to thoroughly. And this is a controversy of sorts, depending on who you talk to within our circles, because the two words do not mean the same thing. They are not in all instances interchangeable, although they have been made as the language, of course, has softened interchangeable. And this is common in language, that a language begins with some measure of distinction, and then as that language continues, certain words fall out of favor, certain words are merged with other words. Uh, a common uh, and good example of this is the word gentleman, right? The word gentleman used to mean something as far as rank and stature. Gentleman had nothing to do with your character, you could be a bad man and a gentleman or a good man and a gentleman. A gentleman was a rank of nobility. Uh, it was, it was, it was a, a statement of one's ranking in society. And then somebody got the idea that that gentleman means that you have a certain manner of living. And so gentlemen became synonymous with the idea of chivalry, became synonymous with the idea of politeness. And though there were still many gentlemen who were cads, they were not good people, yet the gentleman idea had to do with politeness. And then that got extended to the idea that, well, if a gentleman is politeness, then you can have people that are not gentlemen by birth, but they're more gentlemanly than gentlemen, right? And so now you have the word gentleman that doesn't mean it comes to mean not anything having to do with nobility, but having to do with the man who is kind, having to do with the man that is generous, having to do with the man that is chivalrous. Here's the problem with that. We already had words for that. Kind, generous, chivalrous, right? And now the word gentleman means nothing, and it doesn't mean what it did mean, and now the word to describe the man that is in this position of ranking has no meaning because that meaning has been lost underneath this word that is now reproduced by another word that means the same thing. And this happens in language all the time. And it's an unfortunate thing because it muddies waters, but it is what it is. Throughly and thoroughly is kind of this way. They do mean the same thing today, in a manner of speaking. You look up, you can't find throughly in a dictionary anymore, but if you look up throughly, even going back as far as the Webster's 1828, as a matter of fact, going into the 1700s, it does say in a definition of throughly that it has been replaced with thoroughly. That there is this interchange between them. However, there is a nuance that once existed between these two words. In the Webster's 1828, you see a little bit of this nuance, although, and I don't have the, that mention here, but the Webster's does go on to mention that there's an interchange between them. The two words are defined thusly in the Webster's 1828. Thoroughly, an adverb meaning fully, entirely, completely, as a room thoroughly swept, a business thoroughly performed. Throughly, 
as defined by the 1828, completely, fully, holy. So you see some merging between them. Both have this idea of fully. Both have this idea of completely. But notice that third one there, holy. And then notice the subset there, without reserve or sincerely. Thorough means incompleteness or perfection. Through means from end to end or holy. The adverbial use adds the idea of without reserve, sincerely. There is a nuance of difference between these, and the King James translators regarded this difference. Not that the armies would glean the remnant in a thorough manner, in a perfect manner, but rather the armies would glean the remnant in a whole manner, to a whole degree, from end to end, in a through manner. To thoroughly glean would to imply at least a nuance that the process of gleaning was meticulous, deliberate, and perfect in its, in its, um, in its effect, or perfect in its uh, execution. To throughly glean would mean that the army would wholly destroy the people. And the most uh, common example of this is, is the idea that um, we are throughly perfected unto all good works, that idea um, that we see in the New Testament, and throughly is, is the better translation there. Not that as um, the word of God being quick and powerful and sharper than two-edged sword, uh, piercing the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow of the bones, not that the word of God uh, and, and the spirit of God is going to perfect us in every area of, of skill so that we become skillful in everything, but rather that in the ways and the manner that God is working in us to the, to the degree that he has gifted and, and, and given us capacity, he is going to holy, he is going to from end to end uh, bless those capacities that he's given unto us. Now, <clears throat> Personally, I do not take, because of the, the, the way language morphs, I do not necessarily take full issue with those who use the, the word interchangeably. The English language has done so, and, and that is what it is. I don't think it's something that we necessarily need to uh, have grand debates over. However, I am thankful for an older translation and for the capacity to go back and to look at the slight distinctions between these words, because the Greek is very precise. And as the Greek is very precise, and of course in this case we have the Hebrew, not the Greek, so there is a, a, a general lack of precision, and yet as we see, uh, particularly in the New Testament, the precision of the Greek, it is always nice when we can find a word in the English that has a slight nuance of precision that can give us these distinguishing capacities. And then as it relates to the Old Testament as well, we can see some of these um, consistencies of particularity among the language that give us deeper insight into what the translators believed the Word of God was saying and so how they sought to reflect the Word of God from the original languages into our language, a language which is being so heavily watered down today that meaning is becoming more and more difficult to discern. We continue in verses 10 and 11. God says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary with holding in. I will pour it out upon the, the children abroad and upon the assembly of, the, of young men together. For even the husband with the wife shall be taken, the aged with him. 
that is full of days. God asks, whom shall I speak to give this warning? Who will hear me? Who will listen? Who will be instructed? Who will take it to heart? Last week, God spoke of this. He uh, Jeremiah said, I'll go. God said, find anybody, anybody who will regard the word of the Lord. And I'll pardon it. And Jeremiah says, well, I'll go to the great men. And God says, the great men aren't going to help you. This is the frustration. You can, you can hear the frustration in God's voice as he says, who, who can I give this warning to? Who can I speak to that will hear me? Who can I warn that will regard the warning? God has warned and no one has listened. He says their ear is uncircumcised. They refuse to be set apart for the sake of truth. And then we have this phrase, and it's a phrase that we're going to park on within our application today. He says, tragically, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. God forbid that the word of the Lord should become unto us a reproach. God forbid that we should ever regard the word of God without delight. Now, the word, of the, God, uh, the word of God reproves. But as we'll see in our application, reproofs of instruction are the way of life, not the way of death. To them, the word of God was death. To them, the word of God was guilt. To them, the word of God was shame. To them, they would look at the word of God and say, that is the, the thing in which I have no delight. That is the thing which just keeps telling me how, how insufficient I am. That's the thing that just keeps telling me how guilty I need to feel. I remember once I was talking with someone and they had brought a friend to church with them on several occasions and this friend had told them, I don't really like going to your church. And the person said, well, why? And he said, well, because every time I go to your church, I walk away feeling guilty. Well, maybe, and this person was an unbeliever, maybe it's because you don't regard the word of the Lord. So the word of the Lord is unto you a reproach rather than a delight. But to we who walk in the light of the Lord, to we unto whom the word of the Lord is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path, the word of God is intended to be a delight, to be a joy. Now, it doesn't always mean that we read it and we are content. <laughs> Sometimes we read it and the word of God does reprove us. But that reproof is unto life. That reproof is the means by which for us to find greater joys. And yet for the nation of Israel, the Lord says this. The Lord says to them and describes them this way, that the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach and they have no delight in it. That's a tragic statement. He says, therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. He is furious with them. For this, because they do not delight in the law of the Lord. He is tired of holding that fury in. The nation has filled up the cup of God's wrath, and as the wickedness of the city was pouring out like a fountain, so too God is now going to pour out his wrath upon them. He says it will be poured out not just upon the young men, but upon the children and the young men together, upon the husband with the wife, upon even the aged. There will be no one who will be able to avoid the judgment of God. The city will be destroyed from the youngest to the eldest. So God says in verses 12 and 13, And their houses shall be turned unto others. 
with their fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand upon the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. They are a wholly corrupt society. God says their houses will be given to other people, their fields will be given to other people, and their wives will be given to other people. Uh, As would be characteristic in a conquering nation, spoils go to the victor. And as you read throughout the Old Testament, as you read throughout history, generally speaking, the spoils of war were the lands that were conquered, were the... Um, things that were in the land, whether they be the wealth of the land or, or that, the cities and, and, and such, and then also the women of the land. Generally, the men would be destroyed and the women would be kept as a spoil of war. From the least unto the greatest, God says, they will be judged. They will, have, they will suffer the indignity of their lands being lived in by other people, of their houses being lived in by other people, of their wives being taken by other men. Because to the least, from the least to the greatest, they have all completely sold themselves out to covetousness. Everyone is a liar. Everyone is a hypocrite. Everyone is a cheat. Even unto the priests and the prophets. Even unto those that would seek to represent the law of the Lord to the, 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 the closest in their society. This is a corrupt society. And though God's mercy is great, they refuse to hear it. God continues to speak about these prophets and these priests. He said in verse 13 that these prophets and these priests deal falsely. He continues speaking of them in verse 14. He says, They, that would be the prophets and the priests, have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. God says these corrupt prophets, these corrupt priests, they have ever so slightly healed the hurt of the people. That as the people have suffered the indignities that they've already suffered for their sin, as they've already suffered the corruption and the evil for their sin, as they've already received the natural consequences, the famines and the pestilence and the spiritual, um, the, the, the uh, leanness of their souls through spiritual Consequences for their, their wrong actions. Uh, the, there has been a slight heal, healing of these things and the daughter of his people by these false priests and these false prophets. So in other words, these people are reeling under the judgments of God and the only balm they have, remember how we talked last week about the fact that the people loved the false priests and loved the false prophets and were happy to give them money in order to hear their message of, of hope in the midst of judgment, their message that says that you can sin and, and God's not going to judge you. That was the only balm they had left is the little bit of hope that came and it was false hope. The little bit of false hope that they were given by these false prophets and these false priests who said as they continued in their sin, yes, continue in your sin, God's grace will abound. But their efforts to convince the people of a lie will fall short because no matter how much they lie, it's not going to stop the judgment of God, right? The comfort will end when reality hits home. God says in verse 15, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. God asks, Was there any shame in their hearts? The question being, Is their hearts there the nation, or is their hearts the prophets and the priests? Don't really know. Perhaps the prophets and the priests here, if we just continue in the context. They've committed abomination. Were they ashamed? Did they blush at all? 
When a person is confronted with their shame, when a person has done wrong and they are confronted in that, there is a natural shame that comes about. And oftentimes that shame can take a physical manifestation. You see a person blush. You see a person turn their eyes to the ground. You see a person recoil a little bit in shame when their, when their bold sin or their, their error has been made known. God says they were not ashamed. The prophets and the priests would listen to Jeremiah say, you have sinned, say you are idolatrous, say you are fornicators. And they would, with a, with a calm face, listen to Jeremiah without shame. They had hardened hearts to the realities of their own sinfulness. God says there was no shame, there was no blushing Jeremiah is telling them that they're doing evil. He's pointing out their sins. He's making it known and they have no shame. There's no pangs of guilt. They simply do not care. And so, God says, they will fall with them that fall. The priests and the prophets will fall with the falling of the nation. They will be cast down, saith the Lord. So we finish our exposition today. Verses 16 and 17. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Also I set a watchman over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not hearken. God says two things that He has said to them. He first calls to the people, and He says, Stand in the ways and see. Look at your path. Look at the path that you're on and look at the path that you have been called unto because they're different. He says, ask for the old path. Look at the path you're on and say, I want that path. I want the old way. I want the way wherein is goodness. I want to walk therein. And God says, if you'll ask for the old path, I'll give you the old path. And if you stay on the old path, you'll find rest for your soul. This is what God said to them. Then God told them, and I will, if you'll do this, if you'll find the old path, not only will you find rest for your soul, but I will set a watchman over you. I will protect you. I will bless you. And in response to these two offers of the Lord, we have two responses by the nation. When God says, seek the old path and find rest for your souls, their response was, we will not walk in that old path. We will not walk in that old path. When God says, I will give you a watchman to watch over you and protect you, to to hearken to the sound of the trumpet, they say, we will not listen. We will not hearken. They have set their hearts to do evil. Now, we would not expect this of them. We would not expect them to hearken. We would not expect them to seek the old path. They have lost all orientation to what is in their best interest. They are walking in darkness, and they see their darkness as light. They have no means by which, at this point, they're, they're, they're walking with a broken compass, and their compass is saying north, and they're walking south. 
And God says, your compass is broken. And they say, no, it's just fine. We're going to keep going on this path. And God says, seek for the old path. Wherein is the way that you will have rest for your souls? And they say, no, we're going to stick to the path we're on. And he says, I've set up a watchman for you. He will listen for the sound of the trumpet. He will warn you. And they say, no, when the watchman calls, we're not going to listen. We're not going to listen when he calls. That, that, that judgment is coming. We're going to just do things our own way. And this becomes to us an instruction and a warning. I want us this evening to see the root of the issue here, the source of understanding and the foundation of the downfall of any man, whether he be an unbeliever or whether he be a believer, whether it be a man or a family or a church or a society, a culture or a nation. There is a path an old path, and it is a path of righteousness. It is a way of truth. It is the place where there is rest for the souls. It is the place where the watchman resides. It is the place where danger is called forth. And there is a path that leads to darkness. And if we get on that path, if we walk down that path, the farther we get down that path, the less we are able to orient our way to where there becomes a point of no return, to where we are so mixed up, to where we are so confused, to where we have gotten ourselves so deep that we it's not that we can't get out of it but it's it's like that person who goes I don't know if you've ever been spelunking if you've ever been cave diving or any of those things but I've been spelunking a few times and there are these signs there are these markings and they're to help you find the way back and as a person follows those markings as they get deeper into the darkness of this cave, there are deeper warnings. Don't go this way. Don't go that way. Your life is worth more than this, right? Your life is worth more than this silly cave. And if people continue to ignore the warnings, and then if something goes wrong at some point, they lose their orientation, and there's no more markings, and next thing you know, they simply have no way back. There's, there's, there's no way left. And they, they end up passing away in these caves because they cannot find their way back because they have lost their bearings. And as a person goes down these new paths, these paths that they trod for themselves, these paths that reject the old way, the way of truth, wherein is rest for our souls, wherein is righteousness, there comes a point where we become so disoriented, we think we're fine and we're not okay. And there can be a loss of a way back. And so there's really only one point that I want to emphasize for us this evening, and it's, it's within this statement. The difference between the wise and the foolish, the discerning and the blind, the obedient and the disobedient is whether we delight in the law of the Lord. I connect this evening the old path that is spoken of in verses 16 and 17 to this tragic statement that we saw earlier in the chapter that these people saw the word of God, that the, the word of the Lord became to them as a reproach rather than a delight. And I want to use this as an opportunity to elevate the importance of the Word of God. Far above what you perceive with your eyes. Far above what your fallible understanding can, can grasp is the wisdom that is found in the Word of God. And so, can we just do this in, our, in the rest of our time together this evening, uh, can we just kind of stop on the old paths and just soak it in for a few minutes?
Soak in the wisdom of the Word of God as it relates to blessing. I, 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 the picture that comes to mind is, can we just kind of sit in the hot tub of the incubated teachings of God's Word and let it soak into our joints and let it be that balm of comfort to us? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be, the one that meditates on the word of God, the one who delights in the law of God, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Can you let these words sink into your heart this evening? Let the old path sink into your heart this evening where, it, where there is rest for your soul. Those that delight in the law of the Lord, these are the ones who prosper. These are the ones who whose leaf will not wither, and whatsoever he doeth, it shall prosper. We're not talking about health, wealth, and riches here. We're talking about a life of spiritual, emotional prosperity. We are talking about true spiritual prosperity here. We struggle in a material sense to understand the potency of this promise that if I will just set my heart and my mind upon the truths of the word of God as I understand them and the truths of the word of God as they're given in, in, in black and white in this book the truths of the word of God in all of their beauty and simplicity if I will just assimilate these truths into my lives the truths that we thought about this morning let him that stole steal no more but rather let him labor with his hands that he may have to give to him that need the truth that let no corrupt communication proceed out of thy mouth but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. The truth, but be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The truth, wives, submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. The truth, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The truth, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. The truths of God's word. If you can just take these simple truths and read them and obey them and assimilate them into your life, then you will be as a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. But I'm not seeing fruit right away, pastor. I'm obeying my parent. I'm honoring my parent and I'm not happy. Okay. In your season, you will bear fruit. In your season, it will, you, you reap what you sow. In your season, it will bring about prosperity. That may not be today. Today may not be your season. But it will. Do you have enough faith to stay on the old path 
Or do you say, I will not hearken. I will not walk therein. It doesn't make sense to me. This is not personally advantageous to me today. I'm listening to my parents and it's bringing me uh, any number of problems. I'm honoring them and I'm getting nothing back from them. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth, it shall prosper. He shall prosper. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Do you believe it? Is the word of God to you just a reproach? You sit under the teachings of the word of God and you say, I don't like that stuff. That makes me feel bad. I don't like that stuff. It doesn't let, God doesn't let me do what I want. Or is the word of God unto you that balm? Do you delight in the law of the Lord? Because the one who prospers, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. Do you meditate upon the word of God? Meditation is not emptying your mind. That's Near Eastern meditation. Empty your mind. And you know what often fills it in Near Eastern meditation? Evil spirits. Do you know what meditation in the Word of God is? Fill your mind. Fill it with Scripture. Fill it with the law of the Lord. Chew it. Rest in it. Turn it over in your mind again and again and again. I shall set no wicked thing before my eyes. Again and again and again. Obey thy parents in the Lord for this is right. Again and again and again. Husbands, love your wives. Again and again and again. Meditate on it. Chew on it. Let it get into the very fiber of your being. There is blessing here. You will become spiritually fruitful by delighting in spiritual thoughts. By delighting in, 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 in the word of the Lord. By delighting in the word of God. You will not become spiritually fruitful simply by delighting in morality or in religion or just in your church or in your family or in your pastor. Spiritual fruit is born out in those who delight in the law of the Lord. In the law of the Lord. But it goes deeper. Do you want to understand the world as it truly exists? Do you want true discernment and wisdom? There's only one way to get it. It's to know the Lord. Psalm 19, 119. I wish we could spend our whole time reading Psalm 119. But it takes about 45 to 50 minutes to, at a reasonable pace, read through Psalm 119. It's a big, it's a big, big chapter. But I'm, I'm going to give you some of it this evening. We're going to skip around. Let it sink into your heart. This is the old path. This is the way that will bring rest to your soul. Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way. Who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. That's the old ways. That's the old paths. Verse 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Verse 11. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Verse 21. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my and all and my counselors. Verse 41. Let thy mercies 
Come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty at liberty. It's not, it's not bondage. It's liberty. For I seek thy precepts. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved. And I will meditate in thy statutes. Verse 53, horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. Thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I have remembered thy name, O Lord, in the night. I have kept thy law. This I had because I kept thy precepts. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Thou art good, and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. Verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. The, uh, they continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. Unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in mine affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. I am thine. Save me, for I have sought thy precepts. The wicked have waited for me to destroy me, but I will consider thy testimonies. I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. Not verse 97. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou, through thy commandments, hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for thou art ever with me, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. Verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Verse 113. I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. Verse 129. Thy testimonies are wonderful. Therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy word giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. Verse 155. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not thy statutes. Verse 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Verse 165. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. I'm not asking you to trust me. That life will be so much better, more fruitful, full of joy, full of rest for your soul. Blessed, spiritually safe, if you'll just do it God's way. I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to trust God. I'm asking you to trust His Word. Fill yourself with His Word. Love it. Believe it. 
And it will open your eyes. It will give you discernment. It will give you wisdom. It will guide you in the way that you should go. And you will be as a tree planted by the rivers of water. And your leaf will not wither. And whatsoever you do, it shall prosper. You shall prosper. The word of God is your rock. It is your anchor. It will keep you from sin. It will keep you from deceit. When God offered them rest for their souls... They said, we will not walk therein. We will not walk in the old path. When God offered them a watchman to watch over them, to sound the trumpet of warning, they said, you can sound all you want. We won't listen. Why? Because they saw God's law as a reproach rather than as a delight. Solomon wrote, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23, for the commandment is a lamp, And the law is light. And reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Not the way of death. The way of life. If you regard the word of God as a burden to be born, as a weight that you're carrying, to be a law of shame, you don't understand God and you don't understand his word. James calls it the perfect law of liberty. The psalmist said that to seek God's precepts is to walk at liberty. As we read in Psalm 119, I will walk at liberty because I seek thy precepts. This is not something I can prove to you. This is simply something that you have to believe and obey if you're going to see it for yourself. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. As we just continue to soak up the old path, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. Here it is. And in keeping of them, there is great reward. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The reward for keeping the word of God is great. Do you believe it? Children, the reward of obeying your parents is great. Do you believe it? It's not because when you obey your parents, they don't spank you, although that's hopefully the case. But because those who obey the word of God are as trees planted by the rivers of water. They bring forth fruit in their season. Spouse, the reward of love to your wife, of submission to your husband is great. Not because you'll get along with your spouse better, you'll have a happy marriage, although that's true. But because those who obey God's word are as trees planted by the rivers of water that spread out their roots, that shall not see when heat cometh, neither shall their leaf wither. Their leaf will always be green. And what of those who reject God's word? What of those who go at it their own way? What of those who see the old path and say we will not walk therein? 
Well, if the entrance of God's word gives light, if God's word is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path, then what of those who have not God's word? There is an absence of light, an absence of understanding, an absence of discernment. Have you ever seen somebody, perhaps even those that claim to be a Christian, and they're walking in a way, and you're telling them this is wrong, don't do this, this is sin, and it's like they don't see it? It's like they, they, they can't see it? And you, you, you say, look, this is wrong, and, and they go down the path anyway? And you say, why? How is this possible? How can they not see the destruction that's ahead of them? They can't see the destruction because they have no light. If we were to wait until it got dark outside and we were to shut off all the lights in this building and we were to all start walking around, we'd start bumping into chairs. We'd start bumping into each other. We'd be stepping on toes. We'd be falling over. We'd be getting goose eggs on our heads. We'd be cutting ourselves on, on sharp pieces of metal. Why would this be? It would be because we have no light. And we can say all we want. I know where I'm going. I've been in this building a thousand times. Uh, I can navigate it just fine. But the fact of the matter is, where there is no light, dangers cannot be seen. And no matter how much we think we understand, where there is no light, where we cannot see ahead of us, where there is nothing shining discernment upon our eyes, there is no discernment. We just have to trust this, that if you're not walking in the law of the Lord, you're walking in darkness. But I can understand just fine. I have my reason, pastor. I have morality, pastor. I have religion, pastor. I have these things. Those things are all well and good, but they are not light. They might bask in the light of the word of God. Reason basks in the light of the word of God. Morality basks in the light of the word of God. These things shine a dim light. They reflect like the moon. They reflect the light of the word of God. But they aren't the light. They are reflections of the light. They are not sufficient in of themselves. And if we do not walk in the old path, if we do not walk in the law of the Lord, if we do not walk in the light of His Word, we will have eyes, but we will not see. We will have ears, but we will not hear. Not because we don't want to see, but because we lack the capacity to see because we have rejected the light of the Lord. Not because we don't want to hear, but because we lack the capacity to hear as we, have, as, as we have rejected the one thing that gives us the means by which to hearken. Perhaps someone this evening has been operating in a manner that makes perfect sense to you, but is contrary to God's word. Maybe some child who is walking in the rebellion of your heart toward your parents. Maybe you're even complying with them, but you're not actually obeying them. Maybe you're complying, but you're not actually honoring them. And this makes perfect sense to you. My parents don't know what they're talking about, right? Maybe you're even seeing open doors in your persistence. Things are working out in your favor. Mom and dad are finally coming around to my way of thinking, whatever it might be. You are exchanging your way for the fruit that comes from a tree planted by the rivers of water. You are yielding the old path for a way that cannot bless. You are giving up the best 
for the temporary. Maybe some Christian is walking in rebellion to God's word in some other area. Maybe wife, you are complying with your husband, but you've not submitted. You've not aligned your heart with him. Maybe husband, you're, 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 you're being kind to your wife, but you're not actually loving your wife. Maybe you're breaking his law in some way. You're dishonoring a boss. You're living in some hypocrisy and you think that this is best for you, that you need this, that you want this, that you deserve this, that you've earned this. It's working out. Things are working out. I'm, 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 I'm making it. I'm not finding any particular hardship, whatever it might be. Those few dollars... You save by lying. The time you save by a dishonest job, whatever it might be. Maybe you're walking that line of integrity. You're risking relationships. You're flirting with material dangers. But all of that is just minor stuff compared to what you are denying in the capacity of God and His Word to make you fruitful and abound unto every good work so that whatsoever you do shall prosper if you will but stay on the old path. And it is only this that I urge us to consider together this evening. How are you doing in your relationship to God's Word? I, I hope that this time of application has been that balm, that chance just to kind of sit and soak in what the Word of God testifies about itself. To remind ourselves of the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. What parts of God's Word are we ignoring? What parts of God's Word have you reasoned away? What parts of God's Word are just too inconvenient for you to assimilate into your daily life? Where does God's Word seem to constrain you to be a reproach rather than a delight? Do you see proofs of instruction as the way of life or as a way of sorrow and death? John tells us in 1 John 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Are God's commandments grievous to you this evening? Is the word of the Lord unto you a reproach so that you have no delight in it? Have you fallen off the old path and said, I will not walk in it? Let's return to the old path this evening. Wherein is the good way? Upon this promise that if we return to the legacy of those who have gone before that great cloud of witnesses who counted the promises of God of greater worth than anything that this world could possibly offer. Returning to the old path, returning to the good way, we do so with this promise well in hand that we will find rest for our souls. Are you on that old path this evening? It's a well-worn path. It's not an alluring path. It's not a glamorous path. It's not the path of least resistance, but it is the path where fruit is born, where blessing is found, where there is rest unto our souls. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.